Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. This week's show takes a look back at an ambitious movie from a fabled filmmaker released 40 years ago that should have been better known than it is now, and how that came to be. The filmmaker is Ralph Bakshi, and the movie is American Pop. Salmi should have been a star. The kid's a genius. But there were complications. Benny could have been famous, but life got in the way. It ain't no use to sin, wonder why, babe. Tony had a brush with success. You the one who writes the songs? Don't you know I'm nothing without you? But had to let it go. I want you to play one of my songs. So it was up to Pete to grab it, hold it, and make himself heard. Working on a night move Trying to make some front page driving news Working on a night move One family. Some music I love. Four generations. This is work. This is play. In love with the sound of American pop. Ralph Bakshi, the creator of Fritz the Cat and Lord of the Rings, now takes modern animation a quantum leap forward with a motion picture of incredible beauty and remarkable power. Dance to it, drive to it, sing with it, or swing with it. If you can crank it up, plug it in, or switch it on. If it assaults your senses, rocks your body, or touches your soul. It's American Pop. Ralph Bakshi was born in October 1938 in the city of Haifa in what is now Israel, but then was known as Mandatory Palestine. But before he was one years old, his family emigrated to the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn. Bakshi was not the best student at his high school, but he did show a great aptitude towards drawing, something he discovered at the age of 15 when he stole a copy of Gene Burns' Complete Guide to Cartooning from a local public library. After being sent to the principal's office one day when he was caught smoking on campus and participating in a cafeteria food fight, Bakshi would be transferred to the School of Industrial Art in Manhattan. He would be a better student at his new school, and when he graduated in 1956, he would leave with a diploma and an award for his cartoon work. A few months after graduation, Bakshi would get a job at Terry Tunes, the animation company responsible for the creation of Mighty Mouse and Heckle and Jekyll, thanks to the recommendation of a school friend. Bakshi would work as a cell polisher, which would require him to carefully remove dirt and dust from animation cells. As Terry Tunes was based in New Rochelle at the southernmost tip of New York State, 
above the island of Manhattan, Bakshi would spend two hours each day, each way, commuting to and from work. Since there were no subway lines that ran that far north, he'd have to take multiple trains to and from work every day. But he kept at it, and after a few months, the company's production manager, shocked that Bakshi was still coming to work each day, would promote the young man to sell painter. He would continue to rise in the ranks, eventually making it to director at the age of 25. But there would be a cost. The long hours and long commute making his way towards director put a strain on his four-year marriage, and he would be divorced before he ever got the chance to direct his first cartoon. Bakshi would get his first big break when an executive from Terry Tunes asked him to join a meeting with CBS executives about pitching some new show ideas to the network. But CBS wasn't thrilled with any of those ideas, which they found to be too old-fashioned and corny. As the executives were about to leave the meeting, Bakshi blurted out an idea he had for a show called The Mighty Heroes, in which a group of superheroes with names like Rope Man and Diaper Man fought evil wherever they could, often against villains dumber than they were. Fred Silverman, the head of daytime programming at CBS, loved the idea and wanted to see some concept art before committing. Once Bakshi came up with a few ideas a few weeks later, Silverman committed to adding the Mighty Heroes to the already running Terry Toon show Mighty Mouse Playhouse and insisted the show be renamed Mighty Mouse and the Mighty Heroes and that Bakshi would become the updated show creative director. He would get a pay raise, but he'd burn out after a year, unhappy with how Terry Toons would undermine his vision for the new show. In 1967, Bakshi would take a day off from work to pitch a new idea for a show to Silverman, a show that, if picked up, would be the start of Bakshi's own animation studio. But on the way to the CBS offices, Bakshi would get involved in a car accident. He didn't get to the meeting. He didn't get to pitch the show. But he did end up meeting Liz Bassett at the body shop that would repair his car. The two would marry in August 1968. And they are still married today. After a short stint as the last head of Paramount's cartoon studio, before it was shuttered in December 1967, Bakshi finally did open his own animation studio, Ralph Bakshi Studios, and would start to work on commercials for Coca-Cola while seeking funding to make their first feature film. Fritz the Cat was a comic strip created by artist Robert Crumb in 1965 about a feline con artist who frequently went on wild adventures that would include some very kinky sexual escapades. When Bakshi was introduced to the Fritz comics in 1968, he would go out of his way to woo Crumb into letting him make it into a movie. Crumb would agree, and Bakshi would start animating his first sequence, a 15-minute section featuring Fritz and a group of black crows in Harlem as a calling card for the studios to see what they were planning. At first, every major studio and independent distributor turned them down. But in the spring of 1970, after movies like Bonnie and Clyde and Easy Rider showed Hollywood that audiences were changing and wanted something different in their film entertainment, Warner Brothers agreed to finance the $700,000 movie and distribute it, although 
Some of the more conservative executives wanted Bakshi to tone down the sexual content of the movie. When the director refused, Warner's pulled their support. But that a company like Warner's would even be interested in a movie like Fritz the Cat helped the film find a new supporter in Cinemation Industries, a small New York City-based distributor of such exploitation titles as Inga and Fanny Hill, and were about to have an unexpected smash hit in Melvin Peebles' Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Additional funding would come from Saul Zantz, whose fantasy records would release a soundtrack for the movie. Bakshi would adapt his movie from three specific Fritz comic stories, all published in 1968. He would only make minor cosmetic changes to the overall stories and dialogue to make them work better for an animated feature. And to keep production costs down, most of the backgrounds in the film were photographs of New York City taken by several members of the production and then painted over to give the scenes a more realistic setting. The movie would be the first ever animated feature to be given an X rating and was first released in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C. on April 12, 1972. The film would never enter what today is considered to be a wide release, but over the course of its 12-month run in theaters, Fritz the Cat would become one of the biggest non-studio releases of the year, grossing more than $30 million and it would be invited to be screened at the Cannes Film Festival. A sequel, The Nine Lives of Fritz the Cat, would be produced in 1974, but without the involvement of Bakshi or Crumb. It would not come anywhere near the success of the first film, nor would it ever be invited to screen at any film festival. Before Fritz the Cat was even released into theaters, Bakshi was already hard at work on his next film. Heavy Traffic would explore the often surreal fantasies of a 20-something virginal New York cartoonist named Michael Corleone using pinball and gambling as metaphors for the pitfalls of life. This time, Bakshi would have a benefactor from the start, Samuel Z. Arkoff, the legendary producer behind American International Pictures. And once again, to keep production costs low, Bakshi and his team would use photographs of real locations to use as backgrounds. But this time the photos would not be drawn over, giving the film a more realistic setting. Bakshi and his producer, Steve Krantz, had a falling out over profit participation over Fritz the Cat, and at one point Krantz fired Bakshi from heavy traffic, trying to get legendary animator Chuck Jones to take over. But Arkoff told Krantz straight up, no Bakshi, no funding. Bakshi was rehired a few days later. Like Fritz the Cat, Heavy Traffic was also rated X. However, because of the success of Fritz in theaters, more exhibitors were willing to book Heavy Traffic. And while the movie, like Fritz the Cat, received exceptional critical support, audiences were not as supportive of Bakshi's new endeavor. Although the $950,000 movie would still be rather profitable, grossing more than $3 million in theaters. By the release of Heavy Traffic, Bakshi was already in production on not one, but two new features. The first was originally called Harlem Nights and was a pointed commentary on racism in America. Using the Uncle Remus stories made famous by the Walt Disney Company in Song of the South as a jumping off point. 
It would be the first Bakshi movie that used live-action actors in more than just the opening and closing scenes, featuring Scatman Crothers, future Miami Vice star Philip Michael Thomas, and singer Barry White in both the live-action scenes and as voice actors in the animated scenes. This time, Bakshi had one of the most powerful men in Hollywood producing with him, Albert S. Ruddy, who in 1972 won the Academy Award for Best Picture for producing The Godfather. Ruddy had a production deal with Paramount Pictures at the time, where Bakshi had once been the head of their television animation company, and Paramount was originally set to distribute the film. However, the final product, now called Coonskin, featured a variety of racist caricatures from darky iconography, which scared the living hell out of the suits, and Paramount would let the film go. Independent film distributor Bryanston who had found mainstream success with the 1972 porno film Deep Throat and the 1974 horror film The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, would pick the $1.6 million film up. It would get released into theaters on August 20, 1975, but it would not be a great success in large part not because of the mixed reviews, but because Bryanson would go bankrupt two weeks later. Additionally, many theaters were afraid to book the film because of the controversy that surrounded it. Racial tensions were already running high around the country in the summer of 1975, and not everyone who had seen the movie saw it for the biting social satire it was meant to be. Many years later, the film would get a major reevaluation by film scholars, and now Coonskin is regularly considered to be Bakshi's best movie. But that didn't help then. The other Bakshi movie he was working on at the time was called Hey Good Lookin', which was another attempt to seamlessly combine live-action storytelling with animation. The film tells the story of a young man in Brooklyn in the 1950s named Vinny, who was the leader of a gang called the Stompers, and his friendship with his buddy Crazy Shapiro, as they try to navigate their way through girlfriends, mobsters, gang fights, and everything in between. To add to the authenticity of the story, Bakshi cast two actors from the recently released Mean Streets in leading roles, Richard Romanus and David Proval, as well as Yafet Koto and the guys from the glam band The New York Dolls. Shooting would happen in both New York City and Los Angeles during the summer of 1974. The film would be financed by Warner Brothers, who planned on releasing the film in December 1975. But when Bakshi turned in his final cut of the film to the studio, the controversy surrounding Coonskin was still going on, and the studio felt the movie was unreleasable as it was, refusing to not only release the film, but not spend any more money to get it into any shape that they might consider, quote, releasable, unquote. Bakshi would spend seven more years and all the money he earned from other projects to get it there. He would remove all the live-action sequences, including the scenes with Koto and the dolls, and have the actors come back to record new dialogue for the scenes that would be newly animated. Finally, Warner Brothers would release the film in New York City in October of 1982 and in Los Angeles in January 1983. Critics were respectful of the work Bakshi and his team had put into the film, but noted it wasn't as good as some of his other works. But even with its seven-year delay, 
it would still be one of the first films to feature a new form of dance that would explode in a few years. Breakdancing. His next film would move him into a new genre, fantasy. In 1976, he would pitch a story idea to the head of 20th Century Fox, Alan Ladd Jr., called War Wizards, which was based on the idea he was supposed to pitch to CBS back in 1967, before he got into the car accident that led to his meeting with his second wife. War Wizards told the story of a battle between two wizards of opposing powers, one representing the forces of magic and the other representing the forces of industrial technology. The film was meant to be an allegorical comment on the moral ambiguity of technology and the potentially destructive power of propaganda, using the thousands of years of Jews searching for a homeland to call their own, the Holocaust, and the creation of the State of Israel as a roadmap for his story. Bob Holt and Steve Gravers would voice the Warring Wizards, who also happened to be twin brothers. Richard Romanus and David Proval from Hey Good Lookin' would also provide voice work, as would a young actor, for whom this would be his second role, Mark Hamill. Hamill had auditioned for War Wizards in another movie that was about to start shooting in London and Tunisia, a little science fiction movie called The Star Wars. And he got both roles. George Lucas, the director of The Star Wars, would build his shooting schedule so that Hamill could fly back to Los Angeles for a couple of weeks to record his dialogue. Bakshi had made the same deal George Lucas had made with Alan Ladd Jr. over franchise ownership and merchandising. So when the budget for War Wizards ran over and Bakshi approached Ladd for $50,000 to help him finish the film, Ladd would suggest that they find the completion funds elsewhere. And Bakshi would find the money. And he would also find a new way to make his movies that would allow him to make bigger epics at a lower cost. He would take footage from old films, splicing up scenes to get the action the way he wanted, and then he would use a rotoscope, a device which projects and enlarges individual frames of filmed live action to permit them to be used to create cartoon animation and composite film sequences to animate the sequences as he would need. And thanks to IBM introducing a new industrial-sized photocopier, Bakshi and his team figured out a way to feed 35mm reels of film into the machine to produce enlarged copies of each frame to rotoscope. The new costs of creating a single frame of live-action footage to animate would drop to a single penny. Towards the end of a production of both films, Lucas would call Bakshi and ask for a favor. Since Lucas had helped Bakshi with Mark Hamill's schedule, maybe Bakshi would consider changing the title of War Wizards so it wouldn't be confused with the Star Wars. Bakshi would agree to the change. The newly rechristened Wizards would arrive in theaters in February 1977, which would officially make it the film debut of Mark Hamill. And the film would be a moderate hit for Fox, grossing more than $9 million against a $2 million budget. After several misses, Bakshi needed a hit, and Wizard's success would help him secure his next directing project. In late 1974, 
Bakshi had learned that United Artists had abandoned John Borman's screenplay that would have taken J.R.R. Tolkien's three-volume The Lord of the Rings novels and turned them into a single film. Having wanted to make an adaptation of the series since he first read them in the mid-1950s, Bakshi got himself a meeting with the head of United Artists, Mike Metavoy, and was able to get himself hired on to make an animated adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. United Artists offered Bakshi the Borman script, but the animator felt the director of Point Blank and Deliverance didn't understand the novels when he wrote his adaptation. But United Artists would quickly lose faith in Bakshi, as they had done with Borman, and had done with the Beatles before that, when the group approached UA with the idea of making their own movie version of the books with David Lean or Stanley Kubrick or Michelangelo Antonioni. At the time, MGM and United Artists were still fully functional production and distribution companies, sharing studio space and offices at the MGM studio lot in Culver City, California. When United Artists decided to put the movie into turnaround, MGM head Dan Melnick, whose offices were down the hall from Mike Metavoy's, had Bakshi come up to his office, where he would pick the film right up and paid UA the $3 million they had already spent developing the film over the preceding eight years. But soon thereafter, Melnick was out, and his replacement, Dick Shepard, canceled the project once again. Bakshi turned to the one person he felt could help him, Saul Zantz, the fantasy records owner who had helped him out of his Fritz the Cat jam several years earlier, and was now a bona fide film producer himself having won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1976 when he produced One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Michael Douglas. Zantz wrote MGM a check for $3 million to pick up the film and agreed to spend another $8 million to produce the first film in a proposed three-movie series. Like with his other films, Bakshi would once again shoot the movie as a live-action feature first and then rotoscoped the animation over the footage to give the final film the look he wanted. But soon he'd realize that making three films was going to be too much work, and he would rework his deal with Zantz to take the series down to two films. The first film would now be mostly derived from The Fellowship of the Ring, along with some material from the two volumes of The Two Towers, to set up the second film, ending with the battle at Helm's Deep. Amongst the artists who worked on the film included a recent graduate of the Cal Arts Animation Program, Tim Burton. The $8 million movie would be a fairly big success when it arrived in theaters in October 1978, grossing more than $30 million. But as much as the critical reaction was not as good as Bakshi had hoped for, the fan reaction was even worse. He had spent two years of his life making the film, and he was getting ripped to shreds by people who felt the film was incomplete, which isn't necessarily wrong. Zantz and United Artists had removed part one from the title before release, which would have alerted people that there was more to come. But Bakshi would take some solace from Priscilla Tolkien, the author's youngest child, who loved the film. However, a rift would form between Bakshi and Zantz, and that although the director had already started shooting second-unit footage for the second film, he would soon walk away from the project, 
Unhappy that Zance wanted to renegotiate their deal once again and pay back she half of what he earned making the first film. Now, we've spent nearly half an hour talking about Bakshi's life and his work leading up to American Pop. This is deliberate, as it's important to understand Bakshi had specific visions for his work, a melding of two separate forms of movie making to tell his stories in ways never before possible, and at an affordable rate that, done properly, would be financially successful for everyone involved. After he was done with The Lord of the Rings, former MGM head Dan Melnick would land in the executive suite at Columbia Pictures, and Bakshi would pitch him a new concept. American Pop would tell the story of America through the popular culture of the day. But Melnick wasn't sure that Bakshi could properly tell the 200-plus-year history of America in 100 minutes, so Bakshi would whittle the story down to four generations of a Russian-Jewish immigrant family of musicians, the Belinskys, whose musical careers would parallel the history of American pop music from the 1890s to the modern day. The young boy at the start of the story would form a lifelong fascination with performing music that gets passed on to his son, and then his grandson, and finally his great-grandson, each generation finding a bit more success than the one before, until the great-grandson becomes a rock star. Like most of his other productions, Bakshi would first shoot the movie live-action with actors on set, and then rotoscope the animation on top of the performances. And like most of his other films, the cast would mostly be unknowns or up-and-comers. You may recognize the names of actors like Lisa Jane Persky, Richard Mull, or Elia Baskin, and you might know the early 80s L.A. punk band Fear, who also appear in the film. But to tell an epic story on a $5 million budget, you can't go casting name stars, especially when you're going to be covering them up with the animation. One way Bakshi would save money would to be, again, license sequences from other movies to rotoscope over for his film. Some of the gang sequences in American Pop were from the 1931 James Cagney film The Public Enemy, as would be footage of Cagney and Gene Harlow dancing, which would be reused for a ballroom dance sequence. A Nicholas Brothers dance sequence from the 1941 film Stormy Weather would be pretty much used in its entirety. One sequence during the World War II segment were from the 1962 Steve McQueen movie Hell is for Heroes. And footage of the famous on-camera execution of Viet Cong Captain Bay Law by South Vietnamese General Nguyen Ngoc Lon would also be used for the movie. Bakshi would also do something he never did with any previous movie, put himself in the action. You can hear him in one of the scenes with the pregnant Bella, telling her he thinks her song is going to be a big hit. American Pop opened in six theaters in Los Angeles, including the famed Chinese Theater in Hollywood, and another six in New York City, and grossed an astonishing $210,000 in its first three days. After 10 days, the gross was up to $461,000, and after 17 days in the same six theaters, the gross would be $639,000. In 
In its fourth weekend, American Pop would expand to more than 500 theaters nationwide, and its $2 million gross would be an acceptable number, but it wouldn't do much better than that. After four months in theaters, American Pop would finish with a gross of $6 million. With the burgeoning home video market and the continued success of repertory theaters, a movie like American Pop should have remained alive within the pop culture consciousness, the way a movie like 1981's Heavy Metal did. But Bakshi made one fatal mistake when making American Pop. He had waited until the film was completed before getting the music rights for the songs he wanted to use in the movie. He felt the music label executives needed to see how the music was incorporated into the film to understand why he needed those songs. Within the 100-minute movie, there is nearly 80 minutes of music from a variety of artists from across the musical spectrum. So while he was able to get most of the rights he needed to release the film in theaters, from the likes of Pat Benatar, Bob Dylan, Bob Seger, and the Sex Pistols, there would be several artists who simply would not let their music be used in the movie. A couple artists, like Bruce Springsteen, wouldn't even let Bakshi have other artists cover his songs to be used on the soundtrack. Overall, Bakshi would need to record nearly an hour of pop music songs for the film, in part because there was no surviving recordings of some of the songs he wanted the way that he wanted them, considering the film would be released in four-track Dolby Stereo, while some he could only get permission from the music publishers of the songs he wanted instead of the actual recording. So instead of Jefferson Airplane performing Somebody to Love, it's Marcy Levy, a singer and songwriter best known for co-writing Lay Down Sally with Eric Clapton. And the soundtrack album to the movie wasn't released until months after the film was released into theaters because Bakshi was still working on getting the rights to the songs he wanted up until a few weeks before the film's theatrical release. This matters because in February 1981, the home video and cable television markets were still rather small, and most filmmakers and studios weren't thinking about securing rights for current and future ancillary revenue streams. So while Columbia was able to license the movie to cable channels like HBO and Encore for short time frames in the 80s and 90s, when it came to releasing American pop for the home video market, those song rights would be need to be renegotiated. And because the film was not that big of a success, a number of the artists or their representatives would decline to give them again. In fact, it would take 17 years for Columbia Pictures to obtain the necessary music clearances to finally release American Pop on video, when it would get released onto VHS tapes in March of 1998. And that soundtrack album? It has never been reissued since 1981 for the same reasons. Relicensing the songs for CD or digital downloads would be cost prohibitive, although one could easily build their own soundtrack. I remember seeing American Pop at the Los Altos Drive-In in Long Beach with my dad in March of 1981. It was the A title on the bill, playing with American Hot Wax, which was actually a very smart double bill, even though American Hot Wax was like three years old by then. I have no recollection of ever seeing American Hot Wax, so I think we may have left after American Pop. 
And while I know that I've seen loads of Disney animated movies during my younger days, American Pop is only the second animated movie I can remember specific details about. The first being Watership Down, which really messed with my head and my soul when it was released in 1978. But despite American Pop's R rating and adult themes, I was fascinated by the look of the film and the integration of the music and the images. MTV was still six months away from being launched, and the only time we would see what would become known as the music video would be when a cable channel like Showtime needed to fill some time between movies. And most music videos at the time were rather basic, just members of a band on a soundstage performing for the camera as if they were in a concert for one person. There would be very little imagination involved in the productions. So when something like American Pop came around with its color-filled worldview of realistic-looking people using the American songbook to tell a story, well, that expanded my mind into the possibilities of cinema as much as any of the milestone films of my youth, like Seven Samurai, Network, Being There, and, and the Star Wars films. And the good news is that the film still holds up well as a singular work of cinema. Not just an exceptional example of the possibilities of animation, but filmmaking as a whole. Imagine making a century-spanning epic about a country, recreating city streets long since passed into history on a relatively modest budget. For me, American Pop is Bakshi's most successful work, one he would never achieve again. If you've never had the chance to see it, or it's been a while since you last watched it, you can rent it from Apple TV, Amazon, Google Play, Vudu, or YouTube for $2.99 or $3.99 as of March 2021. As previously mentioned, Bakshi's movie Hey Good Lookin' would finally get released in the theaters in October 1982, more than eight years after the start of production, and after years of tinkering with the movie to change it from a live-action animated hybrid to a fully animated film. His next movie would be a return to the fantasy genre which had served him with two of his biggest hits. And Bakshi would team with the renowned fantasy illustrator Frank Frazetta to produce an animated epic fantasy film that would blend the unique styles of the two men, entitled Fire and Ice. But despite the fantasy genre enjoying a measure of success at the box office, and despite this being the first movie Frazetta would work on, Fire and Ice would be a disappointment, earning less than $900,000 after it played in theaters in the late summer and early fall of 1983. After that, Bakshi would find himself unable to get another project off the ground. He had wanted to make a live-action animation hybrid of Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, new versions of Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer's books, and the stories of Sherlock Holmes but about the only work he'd get between 1983 and 1987 would be to direct a Rolling Stones video, The Harlem Shuffle, which he would need to shoot, animate, and edit within three weeks so the video could premiere on the television broadcast for the 1986 Grammy Awards. During 1987 and 1988, he would be the creative director behind CBS's revival of Mighty Mouse which would get canceled after a protest by the American Family Association 
over a scene they felt showed Mighty Mouse snorting cocaine. And then in 1990, Bakshi finally got another chance to make a movie. Cool World was meant to be a partially animated horror film. And if you've ever seen Cool World, you'd know that while the final product wasn't a horror film, it was terrifying to watch. Bakshi didn't get to make the movie he wanted to make. He didn't get to keep most of the cast he wanted outside of Brad Pitt, and he would get sued by the studio if he tried to leave the production. The final product left Bakshi so broken, his next movie, made in 1994, would be a fully live-action production for Showtime, his first without any animation. Bakshi would make a few cartoons for various cable channels, and he'd also do some painting for the Cameron Crowe film Vanilla Sky, but he'd pretty much quit the business for more than a decade, focusing on his painting. He'd also start teaching an undergraduate animation class at New York's School of Visual Arts in 2000. In 2013, he'd launch a Kickstarter campaign to raise funds for what he expected to be his last project, a short called The Last Days of Coney Island. One of the people to help fund the movie through Kickstarter was actor Matthew Modine, who had been a fan of the animator for decades. And Modine would agree to take a role in the short. While Modine's other commitments would prevent him from recording the role in the time frame needed, he would stay on the production as a producer. The short would premiere on Bakshi's 77th birthday in 2015, and he would officially retire from filmmaking after that. Today, Ralph Bakshi and his wife of 52 years enjoy their time at their home in New Mexico. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.